Part two, chapter twelve of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Eighteen hundred and eight to eighteen ten, the Prefecture at Brussels. This was the commencement of a new life. I was to leave my garden, my chickens, my cows my flowers, my regular and tranquil occupations which suited my taste, to lead an entirely different existence. But Providence had given me the desire to endeavour always to make the best of any situation in which I found myself. It was about nine o'clock in the evening, as I have said, when I received by messenger the note from my husband, announcing his nomination as Prefect of Brussels, when he arrived the following morning for breakfast, he found me already prepared to discuss the change in our existence and the arrangements and plans which I thought we should make in consequence. Charlotte was then over eleven years of age. Very advanced for her age, she had a great desire to be informed on all subjects. She had immediately begun to study all the geographical dictionaries regarding Belgium, to examine the maps of the country, and when her father, who knew her well, arrived and questioned her regarding the department of the deal, she already knew all the statistics. As for little Cécile, who was already a good musician at eight years of age, and also a good Italian scholar, her first question was whether she would have a music teacher at Brussels. My husband immediately made all the necessary arrangements at Le Bouille, but, unfortunately, confided his affairs to a man in whom he believed he could have entire confidence. To me he left the care of closing the house and the packing. Monsieur de La Tour du Pin had received an order to report at Paris without delay, as Monsieur de Chabon, his predecessor, had already left Brussels to go to organise the Department of Tuscany, which had just been united to the Empire. Our friend Brouquin, happier even than my husband himself over his good fortune, came to pass several days with us, and they left for Paris together. The news of this nomination had surprised all those who for a long time had solicited favours without obtaining them. Nobody was willing to believe that the government had come to look for Monsieur La Tour du Pin at his plough like Cincinnatus in order to give him the finest prefecture in France. This choice was, however, the most judicious that the wonderful foresight of Napoleon could have made, and for the following reason. Brussels was a conquered capital and no effort had yet been made to attach it to France. The seat of the court and of high society, it had been governed up to the present time only by obscure and worthless representatives. Monsieur de Pontecoulon, the first préfet, was assuredly a man of birth and aristocratic leanings, a former officer of the French guards. His youth had been passed at Versailles and at Paris, and he would perhaps have succeeded at Brussels except for his wife, of whom I have already spoken. It was understood that she had saved his life during the terror. Formerly, she had been the mistress of Mirabeau, 
of whom Lejai, her first husband, was the librarian. It was said that she had been pretty, but if so, she did not retain the slightest vestige of beauty. After her marriage with Monsieur de Pontecoulant, she had been frequently seen in the salon of Barras, and this did not exactly constitute a recommendation. Taken to Brussels by her husband, her antecedents had not been very attractive to the high and aristocratic society which formerly constituted the court of the Archduchess. Surrounded by French intriguers who had fallen upon Belgium as upon a prey, Monsieur de Pontecoulant did not give much time to the cares of the administration. The Emperor had recalled him, at the same time nominating him for the Senate, and had sent Monsieur de Chabon to replace him. The latter, who was an honest and enlightened man, a firm and excellent administrator, had reformed many abuses, punished breaches of trust, and dismissed the culpable parties. All his acts had been just and enlightened. It was only necessary for him to follow out this course to administer the country well. But he had not succeeded in overcoming the aloofness which the upper classes felt for the French government. This task was incumbent upon my husband, and I dare say upon me also, as the source of all influences found in the salon. It is true that Monsieur de Chabon was married, but his wife, who was sickly, insignificant, and of obscure origin, never received, and consequently nobody had ever seen her. I had been preceded at Brussels by a kind of romantic reputation, which I owed to my adventures in America. After having made all the arrangements at Lebuil and sent off by the wagon everything which we thought would be useful to us at Brussels, to diminish the very great expense of our establishment in a large mansion, I set out by post with Madame de Morville, my daughters, and my little son. A friend at Bordeaux, Monsieur Meyer, lent me a carriage which I sold for him at Brussels. En route, I passed three or four weeks at Paris with my aunt, who was then living with Monsieur de Lally in a fine house in the Rue Miroménil, which she has since sold. Madame Dillon had returned from England some time before. I went to see her, for she had received my husband very cordially when he visited Paris with Humbert the preceding year. My sister Fanny had grown up. She was then twenty-three years of age, and without being pretty had a very distinguished air. Several suitors had already presented themselves for her hand, but the one whom she would have preferred among them all, and would have married, was no longer living. This was Prince Alphonse Pignatelli, who had died of a malady of the chest. Before his death he had wished to marry Fanny so as to be able to leave her his fortune, but she had refused. As the days of the unfortunate man were numbered, she thought that it would have shown a lack of consideration on her part towards the family of Monsieur Pignatelli if she had married him at the last moment, although she loved him dearly and would have been happy even in losing him 
to bear his name. I also was grieved, for I should have preferred to have my sister called Pignatelli rather than Bertrand. Since this common name has come from my pen, this is the place to relate what had passed at the time of the last visit of my husband to Paris. The Emperor had repeatedly informed the Empress and Fanny herself of his wish that she should marry General Bertrand, his aide-de-camp, who was later Grand Maréchal of the Palace, who had been in love with her for a long time. My sister was not willing to consent, and the Emperor was much put out. When he learned of her preference for Alphonse Pignatelli, however, he dropped the matter. But after the death of the prince, he took the affair up again. My husband was at Paris, just at the moment when Madame Dillon had promised a definite answer, and she requested him to see the Empress and notify her of the formal refusal of my sister. The commission was quite a delicate one. Nevertheless, he undertook it. The Empress received him in her bedroom, with a deep alcove, was closed during the day by a thick drapery of heavy material, which formed a kind of wall of embroidered damask with a deep border of golden fringe. She asked him to sit down beside her on a couch which was placed against the curtain. As they were on tete-a-tete, Monsieur de la Tour du Pin, without any circumlocution, acquitted himself to the Empress of the Commission with which he had been charged, while at the same time excusing himself for having brought a decision contrary to the wishes of the Emperor. As the Empress continued to insist, in the course of the conversation, which was quite long, he gave expression to very aristocratic sentiments, which were not unpleasant. Finally, after having spoken to him of himself, of me, of our children, of his fortune, of his plans, the Empress dismissed him. My husband then went to make his report to Madame Dillon regarding the interview which he had just had. That same evening, he called on Monsieur de Talleyrand, who took him by the arm, as he was in the habit of doing when he wished to talk informally with him in a corner. What possessed you, he said, to refuse General Bertrand for your sister-in-law? Was that any of your affair? Why, Fanny wished it, replied Monsieur de la Tour du Pin, and my age allows me to act for her as a father. Well, said the cunning old fox, fortunately you have not hurt your affair with all your aristocracy. They love that at the Tuileries now. Who then told you that? demanded my husband. Have you seen the Empress? Not at all, replied Talleyrand. But I have seen the Emperor, who was listening to you. It was perhaps this conversation overheard behind the curtain which made Monsieur de la Tour du Pin préfet at Brussels. It would be difficult for me to tell with exactitude the story of my sojourn at Brussels. They were very fond of society there, and they were much pleased to have at last a salon de préfet held by a woman who belonged to the aristocratic class. There were two ladies residing at Brussels who were my superiors, 
on account of the positions occupied by their husbands the wife of the general commander of the division which had its headquarters at brussels and the wife of the first president of the imperial court seated also at brussels the first madame de chambarlac had been a beautiful savoyard mademoiselle de coucy she was the aunt of monsieur de coucy whom we have known since it was said that she had been a religieuse or novice when her husband during one of the campaigns in italy carried her off and married her although forty years of age she was still quite pretty accustomed to live with military men of every kind she had acquired very common manners which however were relieved by a certain aristocratic gloss you can understand that i was neither able nor willing to associate with such a person her antecedents repelled me i always pictured her to myself attired in the costume of a hussar which she had worn it was said in order to follow her husband during several campaigns as for general de chambarlac he was an imbecile who from the very first day took a hostile position regarding my husband on account of jealousy the second woman was the wife of the first president monsieur betz a learned german with much intelligence and capacity she belonged to the lowest class in the social scale although she was quite homely at the age of fifty years she might nevertheless have been pretty in her youth she was always coiffe pare decollete like a young person i received her at my house on state occasions but i do not remember ever having entered her home although i did not neglect to leave my card from time to time the great jealousy of these two ladies was due to the fact that they were never invited to supper with the dowager to be invited to these suppers was considered a mark of great distinction and formed the line of demarcation in the society of brussels the dowager was the duchesse d'aremberg née comtesse de lamarque and the last descendant of the boar of the ardennes guillaume de lamarque born about fourteen thirty six who was decapitated in fourteen eighty five she represented according to the words of the archbishop of malines the ideal of the reine mere living in retirement in the mansion assigned to the widows of the house of aremberg she maintained there a simple but noble style and invited every day to supper a certain number of persons of every age both men and women she always dined alone went out in an open carriage in all kinds of weather and saw during the course of the day her children especially her blind son whom she tenderly loved every time that a slight indisposition caused by the gout prevented the latter from going out she did not fail to go to see him from seven to nine in the evening she received visits after that hour if any one called the swiss demanded if he had been invited to supper if the response was negative he was not admitted at this hour the guests arrived and such was the respect in which the duchesse was held that no one in brussels would have ventured to arrive at half-past nine at ten o'clock 
the duchesse rang and ordered the supper served after supper we played at lotto until midnight when her son was present he had a game of whist or by preference a game of backgammon with monsieur la tour du pain if he was there these reunions never comprised more than fifteen or eighteen guests chosen from the most distinguished persons of the city or from strangers of distinction but the presence of strangers was rare since france at war with all europe could not be visited then as it has been since i had often met the duchesse d'arambeg at paris before the revolution at the hotel de beauvau where i was received with great kindness besides this i knew that madame de poire and madame de beauvau had written letters regarding me prior to my arrival at brussels the day following our arrival i went therefore accompanied by my husband to see this distinguished lady we were received with the greatest possible kindness and invited for supper on the following day the duchess also expressed the wish that i should present to her my son Humbert, who had come to brussels to meet us this was a token of the consideration with which we were to be treated all the members of high society hastened to inscribe their names at our house or came to see us in person i took very particular care to return all these visits without forgetting anyone i prepared a methodical list of all the persons who had come to call after each name i made a note of all the particulars which i had been able to gather as to the family either in conversation or from the nobility records which i procured at the burgundy library which was and is still very rich in information of this kind as assistance in this work for the present time i had monsieur de verseden de varec secretary-general of the prefecture and for times past an old commander of malta who came to see me every evening at the end of the month i was as familiar with the world of brussels as if i had lived there all my life i knew the liaisons of every kind the animosities the tricasseries and so on our establishment cost us a great deal of money it seems to me that my husband received a certain sum to maintain the house but i'm not sure of this the personnel of the service comprised two domestics and an employé of the bureau dressed in livery a porter a valet de chambre maître d'hôtel the usher of the cabinet who also waited the days of receptions and two men in the stable we occupied the palace where the king of holland has lived since the palace at that time comprised only the east wing of the present royal palace the west wing was then occupied by the hotel bellevue between the two wings was the rue heraldique which was closed in eighteen twenty six when the two wings were joined by the central colonnade my private rooms on the same floor with the state apartments were pleasant and commodious they comprised in particular a fine salon and a billiard room from the very first i announced that i would never receive in the morning under any pretext whatsoever the morning hours i devoted to the education of my daughters helping them in their lessons 
and going out with them for promenades, either on foot or in a carriage. We soon became intimate with a number of persons. My husband met again with pleasure the Comte de Liederkerk, one of his old companions in arms before the revolution in the regiment of the Royal Comtois, of which Monsieur de la Tour du Pain had been the colonel en seconde. The Comte de Liederkerk had married Mademoiselle des Antoines, who was heiress to an immense fortune of which she already possessed a considerable part. They had only one son, Florent Charles Auguste, and two daughters. The young man, then twenty-two years of age, was auditeur of the Council of State. As there was talk of attaching one of these auditeurs to the person of each préfet, in order to give these young men an acquaintance with the administration, and with the idea of employing them as secretaries in the private cabinet of the préfet, Monsieur de Liedekerque requested Monsieur de la Tour du Pain, his former colonel, to give his son such a post. Our son, Humbert, had left Antwerp, where Monsieur Malouet had been to him a second father, and returned to Brussels to take up the preparatory studies which were necessary for his examination for the Council of State, which was to take place in several months. During the month of September 1808, I received a letter from my stepmother, Madame Dillon. She informed me that my sister had finally decided, after much hesitation and uncertainty, to marry General Bertrand. She had been overcome in part by his constancy and in part by the persistency of the Emperor, to whom you could refuse nothing, as he used so much charm and fascination in obtaining what he desired. My sister at that time was extremely frivolous, with the frivolity of a creole like her mother. Napoleon had desired that she should accompany the Empress Josephine to Fontainebleau, and in order to enable her to appear to advantage, he had sent her 30,000 francs to cover the expenses of her wardrobe during the week that the court was to be there. At this time, he finally succeeded in obtaining her assent to the proposed union, which he had refused so obstinately. The Emperor decided that the marriage should take place at once, in spite of the objection raised by my sister that her mother had just lost her daughter, poor Madame de Fitzjames. The Emperor, in face of these attempts at delay, and judging that the two women, if left to themselves, would never come to a decision, said to Fanny, have your sister come. She will arrange everything. I am leaving for Erfurt in a week. The marriage must take place before then. I was advised by a letter from the Duc de Bassano, for neither Madame Dillon nor Fanny thought to write me. Although the letter was very pleasant, it had very much the air of an order, and the thought of refusing did not enter my mind. Two hours after I received it, I was on my way to Paris. At daybreak, I arrived at the house of Madame Dinin, who was stupefied on awakening to find me beside her bed. She always kept a room at our disposal in her pretty mansion of the Rue de Meromineil, where she then lived. I remained with my aunt only long enough to change my gown and to send for a carriage. 
Then, having taken a cup of tea, I went to see Madame Dillon, Rue Joubert. There I learned that she had been for several days in the country, not far from Saint-Cloud, with Madame de Boigne. She had left no word for me. I then demanded the name and the route to take to this house, and immediately set out again, after having written a line to the Duc de Bassano to announce to him my arrival. After a trip of an hour and a half, I arrived at Beauregard, the house of Madame de Boigne, above Malmaison. Half past eleven was striking when I arrived, and Madame Dillon was still in bed. Fanny cried, Now we are saved. Here is my sister. Her mother, on the contrary, was seized with fright at the idea of the activity which my energy would impart to her. She had thought of nothing. I began by advising her to get up, dress, take breakfast, and then return to Paris with my sister and myself. At this moment, General Bertrand arrived. Until then, I had never met him, and he probably knew that my husband had been charged by Madame Dillon with the task of refusing his marriage propositions two years before. As he was naturally extremely timid, he was very much embarrassed. In order to put him at his ease, I proposed to him a walk in the park, while awaiting the moment when Madame Dillon should be dressed. During this promenade, which lasted an hour, we came to such a complete understanding that on returning to the house, all was arranged. Without entering into long details, I will say that the following morning everything was ready and the signature of the contract was fixed for the next evening this was accomplished at the mairie the grand juge regnier was awakened at five o'clock in the morning to have expedited i know not what act which had to serve as a certificate of baptism for my sister as madame dillon had lost the one which she possessed if she ever had one even the most diligent courier would not have been able to go to Avennes in Flanders, where my sister was born, and return by the day destined by Napoleon for the marriage. The emperor had also insisted that the ceremony should take place at saint Lulieu, at the chateau of Queen Hortense. He was very careful to carry out in all particulars the orders given by the emperor for the ceremony. Thus, at the moment when he was going to assemble around him all the potentates who were then at his feet, the great man had found the time to regulate the minutest details of the celebration of the marriage of his favourite aide-de-camp. I was presented to the emperor by Madame de Bassano at Saint-Cloud. Towards eight o'clock in the morning, it was necessary for me to go to her house in court costume with a plumed toque. The emperor received me in the most gracious manner, asked me many questions regarding Brussels, the society, la haute société, with a smile which seemed to say, vous n'aimez que cela. Then he laughed at having made me get up so early in the morning, and made a little fun of Madame de Bassano on this subject, a mockery which she took with a little sulky air which was very becoming to her. She has since told me that the emperor at that time was quite smitten with her. 
the great ones of the earth arrived with their wives the clauses of the marriage contract were read but i do not remember the details although i think they were favourable to my sister fanny that day appeared to very great advantage the evening which preceded the day of the marriage passed in a very tiresome manner the dejeuner the next day was not more amusing the marriage was to take place at half-past three all the ashi arrived the marshals the generals and so on we marched in a procession to the chapel the abbe dosmond bishop of nancy later archbishop of florence gave the nuptial benediction then the dinner was served and after dinner we danced many young people came from paris queen hortense who loved to dance nevertheless was in bad humour on account of a little incident which was quite amusing the emperor had not appeared but he had intimated to queen hortense that after having examined the set of emeralds surrounded by diamonds which the empress had given fanny he did not think it was sufficient as he knew that hortense had a similar set he requested her to add hers to that given by her mother in order to complete the gift she did not expect anything of this kind and was very much displeased but it was necessary to submit End of part two, chapter twelve.